However, in his book, Reform is Not Enough in Chapter 7, um, he's very clear that he is, at least in, in a sense. So he says this, quote, Christians tend to understand covenantal history in one of two ways. Either God has made one basic covenant with men throughout history, or he has made more than one, possibly many. As we shall see, Scripture teaches that there is only one covenantal history, which we, we may call the covenant of grace, end quote. Um, but then in the book, he'll go on to talk about distinctions in covenants. And and I don't remember if he was making administrative dis- administrative substance distinctions like Presbyterians typically do. Um, he didn't say that from what I recall, um, but he seems to clearly see even in his book that there are distinct covenants. Um, but he says that there's only one covenant, uh, which is the covenant of grace. So yeah. in that sense, he is a monocovenantalist. Well, he might just be inconsistent because I, I understand. Yeah, the I think at the very least he's inconsistent. Yeah, the distinction yeah. he's making here, I I, rec- I I don't agree with what he's saying, but I recognize he's saying that the covenant Adam kept had different a different thing for Adam to keep as opposed to Christ. Therefore, they're different covenants. I get that. Um, but yeah, that then to say like, well, they're not real in the terms of history they're not real distinctions it is all one covenant that makes it hard to to then yeah and then it's like are back. you talking about administration which is how um you would find your typical presbyterian yeah. discussion around the differences yeah. of the covenant or are you talking about really different covenants i don't remember him talking about any administrative differences mm-hmm. um you might yeah. believe that he might not at the very least it, it's an apparent contradiction um, because he's saying here that there are different covenants that were made, but then he says in his book that there's only one covenant, the covenant of grace. And that's mm-hmm. probably where people get this idea of monocovenantalism mm-hmm. um, is from uh, where he talks about just one covenantal history. Mm-hmm. And also, um, while it's important to parallel Adam and Christ, how does that apply to us, right? Us being in the new covenant. Because um, if you're saying that Adam could have done it by grace alone through faith faith alone justified by faith alone does that mean the same thing for us because adam had something to obey what is it right. that we have to obey and that's where we get into the issue of doug wilson does wrap obedience into faith and that's why he sees he's there's not a there's not an, an issue there but for us there would be an issue which is why we say one is the covenant of grace because all the all the necessary requirements for our salvation have been fulfilled by another. And it's given to us by grace, not merited on anything on our, uh, on our, or not merited by us and only by faith, the instrument of faith. Faith is the means by which it happens, not anything else mixed in with faith, but faith alone. Yeah, that's exactly right. And he'll use the terminology in here. You heard him say, he says that, well, Adam, you know, was supposed to fulfill the, his covenant, but then Christ fulfilled the covenant of grace, right? But then mm-hmm. he'll talk in his book about covenantal faithfulness on our part as fulfilling our part of the covenant. So his statement here is not complete in terms of what he has historically meant by covenant keeping as it relates to the covenant of grace. Christ fulfilled his part, but we still have to fulfill our covenantal conditions to receive the blessings and the promises mm-hmm. in that new mm-hmm. covenant. And that's where some of the dangerous language comes from. 
Yeah. Um, it's, it's really just, understanding. And it really goes back to just understanding what is the act of impassive obedience of Christ? Does that fulfill the nature of the covenant of works? And if you deny a covenant of works, then you really have no foundation for Christ's work at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to his discussion on faithfulness. Second point, and this is this t- is going to sort of circle around to what we were talking about just a few moments ago, and this is really important. The conditions of the covenant with Adam are the conditions for Christians' faithfulness. Now, I, that there's a obviously a distinction being made between faith and faithfulness. Right. Um, right. And and so, is is that definitional of the federal vision and what's your view on it? Uh, so my my view is that God gives uh, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace are you saved through faith, and that, that referring to the faith, and that faith is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. So um, the faith, when I first trust in God, uh, that faith is the instrument of my justification. The ground of, the, ground of justification is the obedience of Jesus Christ throughout his, the course of his life and his culminating obedience on the cross. That's the ground of justification. When God gives me faith to trust in Christ at the moment of my justification, I trust in God, trust in the gospel, trust in Christ with that God-given faith. That God-given, God-given faith is living faith. Okay, And at that moment, it's a punctiliar moment where I'm justified. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to me. And in my justification, I am perfect. God looks at me and sees Jesus Christ and nothing else. So my justification, uh, my status, is that of uh, the perfection of Jesus Christ. That's what I have. Now, but that faith that believed, that was the instrument to believing to justification, that faith doesn't disappear. It, It doesn't go away. So I believe in justification by faith alone, but I also believe that that faith remains and trusts God in the realm of sanctification. Now, I'm, I'm, I don't get justified because of how well I'm doing in my sanctification. But, but the instrument that, let, let's say, five years after conversion, I have a really bad week and I sin a lot in that week. And on the Friday of that really bad week, I get hit by a truck and I, but I'm, and I go to heaven. I go to heaven because I'm perfect in Christ. I go to heaven because I'm justified, because I was declared not guilty uh, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But I was having a bad week because I wasn't walking by faith with regard to my sanctification the way I should have been, which is why Paul chides the Galatians. Are you so foolish? Having begun with the spirit, are you now going to finish by human effort? Are you now going to finish in the flesh? No. And and in Romans 1, Paul says that uh, he quote, he's quoting Habakkuk 2, uh, the just shall live by faith, or the just shall live by his faith. But notice, the just it doesn't say the just shall start by faith and finish by works. It says the just shall live by faith. So I'm converted on Tuesday. I'm justified by faith alone on Tuesday. On Wednesday, everything I do ought to be by faith also, right? On Thursday, sanctification is by faith. And it's the same faith. And it's a living faith because God doesn't give any other kind. Okay, so let me... So as far as it goes, again, we would agree with the terminology. You know, we we continue by faith. We live by faith. I think Hebrews 11 is explicit on that. Um, 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2, he says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there is a continuing on in the faith that uh, the scriptures talk about, and we, I think, would 100% agree with that um, in principle. But as we've said before, terminology is not necessarily the same in Doug Wilson's world as it is with ours. Um, it, he sees this idea of covenantal faithfulness as it relates to faith in a continuing on in that covenant faithfulness as requirement for being, um, you know, being part of the eschatological church or the church that will be resurrected on the last day that will make it to heaven. Um, and it's conditioned upon your covenantal faithfulness. So it all goes back to that understanding of covenant theology. What is that foundational framework that he has that really defines what faith morphs into for him? Yeah. So at this point, I do want to just bring out um, for when we hear Doug talk about faith, we're, 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 we're thinking about our, our definition of faith, right? And he says things that are completely orthodox, listening with that. But the, the question becomes, when he talks about faithfulness, okay, what do, you, what do you mean? Are you merely saying, like the Reformed do, that um, faith, we're justified by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone, i.e. that faith, um, the faith that saves also produces works. Not that you are justified by those works, but they are evidences of of uh, your saving faith, right? Or are you saying that that um, that faithfulness is um, a part of the faith that justifies that needs to be in there for it to be justifying faith? Um, because most people, including myself, for a very long time, would have heard uh, the um, the former, but I, I think he actually means the latter. And I'll um, I'll bring up uh, wherever I have it, um, uh, so where he's basically asked this question: What do you mean? Are you saying that it's a, a fruit issue or a, a root issue? That it's part of the justification or it's a result of the justifying faith? Um, and uh, unlike Dan, um, I did uh, branch out to uh, some people that had already done some work on this issue, so. I'm actually quoting um, on Theocast's website there. Uh, they have this uh, quotation here if you want to look at it, um, which I should really be able to find here real quick. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, under their their uh, episode is Doug Wilson, a false teacher. They have a list of quotations. So this quotation comes from um, an interview with Covenant Renewal magazine. Um, and Doug Wilson was asked, Doug, when you cite continuing in goodness in Romans 11 in your 2002 lecture, is that the cause of our salvation or the fruit of it? So that's that's the question we needed to know, right? Is this continuing in goodness a cause or a fruit of our salvation? And his response to this question is yes. So he means both. And then he goes on to elaborate. Look, in Colossians, Paul says, as you received Christ, so walk in him. So the way we become Christians is the way we stay Christians, is the way we finish as Christians, by faith from first to last. So we continue in God's goodness by trust. We stand by faith. They fell. But you stand doing that to the end. Uh, but you stand doing that to the end is how you come to your salvation. 
It is the gift of God, lest anyone boast. I believe we are saved by faith from first to last, which is why I've been accused of denying sola fide. So it's it's very interesting because the question is about continuing in goodness. And then he says, yes. And then he starts talking about faith. Why? Why is that? Because in my mind, those are completely separate things. Right. Uh, well, or they are separate things. So it is it seems in his mind those things are related to the point where he can use them interchangeably interchangeably mm-hmm. continuing in goodness and faith are able to be used interchangeably which is why he can say continuing in goodness is both a cause of our justification and a result of it um and that's the problem yeah that He's, because when, yeah now you're conflating when, terms that should be different our sanctification flows from our faith we do continue by faith. Sure, we believe in the gospel and we continue to believe in Christ, but our sanctification will always flow from that faith. It's never a result of your justifying faith. Yeah, yeah. And that, that that's that's the issue. That's why he, he's saying it until he's blue in the faith. I face, I believe in sola fide, but when you're throwing this stuff in the fide, it's right. no longer sola fide. It's that's, no wonder that people kind of go, what are you saying? Wait, what? Yeah. That means this. Yeah. That means that. Slow down. Duh. Yeah. Slow down. <laughs> and unfortunately, if, if you were to come out and say, I'm I'm very sorry, guys. The language I've been using for a very long time has been very unhelpful, very confusing. I'm sorry. This is, this is what I mean. Then we would accept that. But I've seen a lot of, oh, well, people are misunderstanding me. Oh, we're, well, people are, are, um, they're not reading me correctly, but I've never seen any, like, guys, I, I just, I do just mean that. I know this language can get confusing sometimes. Like, I, I just, I'll go I just back mean, and, and fix yeah. my book. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll go back, back and fix my language so that it's a lot more clear. But you, sometimes he says just orthodox things, and other times he says things like this where he's clearly conflating things. So you're just left with, well, he, he must be conflating it. And it fits yeah. with other aspects of his system. Right, right. And and as and he goes on to, you know, he uses this term of believers. In chapter three of his book, Reforms on Earth, he references believers as covenant keepers and unbelievers who are basically external members of the new covenant are covenant breakers. Um, so it it is this concept of faithfulness is throughout his understanding of what it means to proceed in the Christian life. Mm-hmm. And it's tied directly back to his understanding of faith, saving faith, and how he understands justification. Um, so yeah, he uses the term covenant faithfulness in his book, chapter three, um, chapter seven, he says this about covenant faithfulness. He says, quote, and so how are we to live? One of the great things we must note about God's covenantal faithfulness is that he has not done all things in a corner. The sun has risen. Why do we close our eyes and our introspection and complain that it is still dark. Looking away to God's mighty acts in history with faith is not superstition. And here is the basis of visible covenant faithfulness. Here is our central duty, end quote. So again, he's he's seeing faith and, uh, and faithfulness as going hand in hand um, as it relates to, in, in light of what Sean just quoted um, from that interview, uh, it would seem that he believes faith to, be a result of a sanctifying work as a result of justifying faith and the justifying um, element. Um, Chapter 15, uh, he fleshes this idea of faithfulness out more, and I'm going to kind of be jumping all over places in the book um, and going through different quotes here. Um, And Sean, just interrupt me if you want to comment on something. 
Um, but chapter 15 says this, quote, to assert that men fall away because of their gospel of their salvation. I'm sorry, let me start over. To assert that men fall away because their salvation was contingent upon continued faithfulness in the gospel is not to deny the sovereignty of God at all, end quote. So he's clearly implying that he sees faithfulness and their salvation is contingent upon that continued faithfulness to the covenant. Again, dangerous language that we're seeing here. Something that I'm doing, my perseverance, is what is keeping me in um, the kingdom, so to speak. That my salvation is contingent upon that. He's very clear about that. Yeah. Um, now, we would believe that uh, that we do persevere, that, man, that Christians are to continue on. We're warned about not doing that. Um, but the scriptures are also clear that we are kept in the covenant, and we are kept in perseverance by God, by Christ. None of... Jesus will raise up his own on the last day, John 10. Um, so there is the there is an, a step back, an element back that we have to remember. It's our faithfulness or perseverance is not, uh, can, or our salvation is not contingent upon our perseverance. Um, our salvation is contingent upon the grace of God, working through the instrument of faith, through the Spirit's work, through the Word, etc. Um, and then we are kept there by God to persevere and not ultimately fall away, even though we might appear to fall away, although we might appear to live um, like the world, um, at the end of the day, we will repent and we will um, uh, make it to the end. And that is, Sorry, you that, to say something, Sean. yeah, that is uh, an issue with, with the whole covenant theology framework um, that he has, because he has unelect members as part of the covenant. Exactly. Uh, and they, and they, they fall away. It means he has to say, Perseverance is not a part of the covenant. Uh, of the covenant, it's just a a um, an outflow of your election, right? Whereas we, as, as Reformed Baptists, would say, no, your perseverance is guaranteed by membership in the covenant. It's one of the provisions of the covenant on God's side. If you mm -hmm. believe in Christ, He will cause you to persevere to the end. Yeah. Um. But in in, in Wilson's view. Um, and, and this might even just be a Presbyterian view in general, because they do have to have the dual membership of the covenant. But um, yeah, we saw that with um, callback to the Reform Forum episode. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't think they would go as far as Wilson, no, but no, they, they would, would certainly would not, believe yeah. in twofold membership. Yeah. Well, the OPC uh, had a statement explicitly condemning federal vision. So to be yeah. OPC, and we're an thankful OPC for minister. that. Yeah. Very thankful. Um, to be an OPC minister, you would, you would have to be against federal vision, but yeah, um, it's, it is a, it is a covenant theology issue. It is, uh, yep. you're not allowed to say that, um, the covenant is guaranteed or your, your remaining in the covenant is guaranteed by God himself. Um, because there are plenty of people in the covenant that, that don't persevere. It's not a, it's not a part of the covenant. It's merely a function of being elect. Yep. And, and that's a very important part because the quote I just read was a, in context, he's talking about apostasy. And so he does believe that those warnings in scripture that talk about falling away are real. He does not believe they're hypothetical, um, although he only sees them as applying to covenant members who are not believers, who are not faithful to the covenant, who have not fulfilled the covenantal requirements. He doesn't believe that the elect will fall. Those apply to the elect, but he does believe they are real um, there is real apostasy um, in terms of those um, those warnings in that they are actual covenant members by virtue of um, their baptism. Um, if 
because that's how he sees entrance into the covenant ultimately. Um, so yeah, he says, quote, there is such, and this is still in chapter 15, he says, quote, there, so there is such a thing as genuine covenantal connection to Christ, which is not salvific at the last day. So again, if you believe that you're a member of the new covenant and the federal head is Christ, then you have to be united to him in some way, even if you're not saved. Um, we would obviously have a problem with that because if you are a member of a covenant, you receive the benefits or the curses of the federal head. That's just the nature of covenant theology. Um, so when we're in Adam, we receive the condemnation, the, the punishment from his sin, since he represented us in Christ. We receive all the spiritual blessings, uh, Ephesians 1, that come from being united in Jesus Christ. And that would include righteousness. That would include sanctification and et cetera. Um, so you can't be united to Christ and not receive uh, the benefits. That's that's impossible. Um, so he does reject this. Uh, also reject the idea that the new covenant saves exclusively. He says, quote, a common and erroneous assumption is that the new covenant contains nothing but automatic blessings. It is assumed that the covenant of grace in its ethereal heavenly guise can do nothing but save, end quote. So this leaves room for that second class of membership, right? You're laughing, yeah, Sean. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the new covenant contains nothing but blessing. I mean... <laughs> Yes, in the theoretical sense, if somebody were to be in the covenant and leave, then yes, it would it would contain cursed. That's true. But when you remember that the the covenant, like how many covenant promises, just implicitly have the uh, the understanding that you will receive blessing. Um, right. <laughs> like, uh, and, and if you're not a member of the covenant to begin with, there is no such thing as covenant curses. <laughs> Yeah, there's only grace in this covenant because yeah, it's exactly. a member who's saved. I mean, there's no yeah. punishment for them in that sense. Even yeah. uh, and we wouldn't count. Um, I don't think we would count discipline as a covenant no. hurt. No, um, if anything, it's a covenant blessing because right, uh, it's a covenant blessing, right? Because yeah. it helps you in your yeah. perseverance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, it, it just doesn't work in this case, and unless you believe in a twofold membership of the covenant, then yeah, it makes sense. But yeah, if you can demonstrate biblically that. Only those who are members of the new covenant are saved and vice versa. Then you are left with only blessings in this covenant. Yep. Um, and again, he makes a distinction between the elect members. They will not fall away. He says, quote, it is important to note that the doctrine of preservation applies to the elect, not to all and sundry covenant members. Both are equally in the covenant and both have means of preservation near at hand. The elect the elect may neglect them, but only for a time. The non-elect neglect them at a profound level, end quote. Again, this has problems with federal headship. Um, so apparently there can be those who are united to Christ who do not receive the blessings of the federal head, which is impossible by virtue of federal headship um, as it relates to um, as it relates to being in Christ. Because again, Paul uses this terminology again and again. Being in Christ means that you, being united to Christ means that you receive all the spiritual blessings. Um, and then, in, like in 1 Corinthians one thirty, Paul breaks down some of those blessings. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Those who are united to Christ receive these salvific blessings. There's, there's just no other way to, um, to look at it. If you're united to Christ as the federal head, you receive the blessings. And that's the nature of federal headship, as we see um, with Adam. Um, so moving on, um, chapter 16, 
Uh, he talks more about baptism in the covenant, and this really is talking about uh, going back to the debate that James White and Doug Wilson had, um, because Wilson sees baptism, a Trinitarian baptism, that is, as being really the entrance into the covenant. Um, and that's how you can have unbelievers in the covenant, even though they aren't really being faithful to the covenant, um, because they don't believe by faith. They're not fulfilling that part of the covenant, at least. Um, so I'm going to read this um, this quote here from him to give us some background. This is chapter from chapter 16 of Reformed is Not Enough. Quote, we must receive everyone who is lawfully baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as a fellow Christian. This means that they are counted as members of the covenant, which is not the same thing as saying they are faithful to it, end quote. And, and again, this is, he's still carrying the theme of twofold membership of the covenant, but he's seeing this entrance into it as baptism. And that makes perfect sense, right? Because if you say that faith is not how you're united to Christ, then you leave room for other things. Because if you say that faith is what unites you to Christ, then you're left with saying that all those who are members of the covenant have to be those who are faithful to it, right? Or those who have to believe. So you have to have some way to allow another membership into that covenant. Um, and, and Doug Wilson does believe that Roman Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ so far as they are baptized in a Trinitarian um, in a Trinitarian sense. And this is where Wilson and White would um, diverge and they had their debate back in 2004 on. Um, and, and baptism is certainly not entrance. It's as we see in first Peter three, um, it is a answer to a pure conscience. It's a symbol of cleansing. It is in identifying with Christ and his death and his resurrection, Romans chapter 6, but it is not an entrance into the covenant. Sign of the covenant, but not an entrance into the covenant. Um, and what's interesting in 1 Peter 3, this is a, a favorite passage of our Lutheran friends uh, for baptismal salvation or baptismal regeneration, however you want to say it. Um, but what's interesting is the example that Peter uses with Noah in the ark. He sees Noah in the flood as being typological um, and fulfilled with baptism in our washing, but that comes uh, that came after Noah believed. Because in in Hebrews, um, the writer of Hebrews makes very clear that uh, before the flood came, Noah had believed by faith and he was justified. So this would have to come after someone believes, which fits nicely with credo baptism. Um, so the symbology here actually fits more with our view than the Lutheran view. Um, and so I think baptism, you know, can flow from that. So it's it's certainly after you have been united to Christ by faith. It's not before, um, and it's something that you do in obedience after faith. Anything to add, Sean? Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, going back, uh, because this is not the first time we've encountered the view that the covenant sign puts you in the covenant. Um, going back to that Reform Forum episode that we uh, we responded to, um, they made the, the exact same claim that, you know, yep. circumcision puts you in the old covenant. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because obviously we, we believe in a distinction in the covenants. But from that perspective, if circumcision didn't put you in the covenant, why would you think that baptism would? And um, in that in that <laughs> video, I brought up three proof texts, but I'll just bring up uh, one here. This is Genesis 17, 14. Um, and the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. So 
the the child has not been yep. circumcised and he's being cut off. Why? Because he broke the covenant. Well, how how can he break the covenant if he's if he's not in it? Um, to use to use the, the language uh, that we've been hearing, um, and it's because in this case, the sign doesn't make you in the covenant. You're already in the covenant and you receive the sign. Just like uh, take the Noahic covenant, right? Is, did the appearance of the rainbow put people in the covenant? Did it put Noah and his family in the covenant? Or is it a sign of the covenant? Well, it's a sign of the covenant. It's a sign of a reality that already exists. Um, same with baptism. We might administer baptism improperly, but it's supposed to be a sign of the covenant that someone, I mean, it's, more, it's much more than that, but it's supposed to be a sign of the covenant that somebody is already in. Um, to follow the the um, the way that uh, the previous covenants have have been administered with their signs, so um, I think it's extremely problematic on a number of fronts to say baptism is what puts you into the new covenant, as opposed to faith being what puts you in the new covenant. Yep, that's exactly right, and yeah, we have to see baptism as as a sign. It it's an answer to pure conscience for God, and it it symbolizes our identifying to Christ. It's not doing anything um, to you in the washing. It's not purifying us in the washing. It's not bringing some sort of salvific stance before God. It's merely an answer to God for a pure conscience and declaring our identity with Jesus Christ um, and yeah. symbolizing our identification in the new covenant. It just occurred to me, this is actually um, a perfect example of the faith-faithfulness distinction. Um, mm. Because... If you have saving faith, you will get baptized because people always ask the question right. like, well, do you need to be baptized to be saved? If you were to die before you were baptized, would you go to heaven or hell? The answer is, well, you've been justified by faith. You would go to heaven. You didn't need to be baptized. Yes. But so you already have the saving faith. But the person who is uh, believing when he encounters the, the knowledge that, oh, Christ would have me to be baptized. Let me go get baptized. That is a result of the faith but is not part of the faith that justified. It is something separate. And that's the issue. We could say, yes. okay, it is the person continuing in righteousness, but that continuing in righteousness is not what justified him. It was the faith. They are, they are separate. They are treated as distinct. Paul treats these things as distinct, which is why he can talk about justification by uh, faith apart from works. Apart from works. We can treat these as two distinct things. They don't... They they shouldn't be conflated when we're looking at them from the perspective of justification. Uh, we shouldn't conflate our sanctification in with our justification. And um, whether he completely understands it or not, that is what Wilson is doing. Yeah. And um, it's interesting too. Paul in Romans four says that Abraham was justified by faith before the sign of the covenant was given. Exactly. So, so exactly. Jews couldn't say, well, look, the circumcision over here, that, that's what got him into the kingdom. Look at us Jews. You know, we're better than you guys, you Gentiles. No, 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 no. So he's the father of anybody who believes by faith, Jew mm -hmm. and Gentile. Mm -hmm. um, and the circumcision was really just a, you know, Paul says it's a seal of, of, his, of his faith that he already had. Um, and that's what brought him into the covenant was his, his faith, into the new covenant, that is. And then into the, uh, into the, uh, Abrahamic covenant, and then the the old covenant, which was the Mosaic covenant. Circumcision was that external sign uh, into that into that covenant. Um, but yeah, it, it's very interesting to understand the order 
of operations here when we're talking about entrance in the covenant because your lacking baptism could fall into that bad week that Doug Wilson was referring to where you sin a lot, right? Oh, I'm just not going to get baptized, not going to get and then you get hit by a truck. You're still going to go to heaven if you believe in Christ by faith alone, even if you aren't baptized. But you will get baptized as a natural result of your obedient faith, your obedience um, later on. But um, you're going to go to heaven not on the basis of that, but it's going to be on the basis of, of Christ's work. And that's really the difference that we're seeing here. Um, and he even goes on to say in chapter 23, which is the epilogue of his book, um, that baptism is the entrance in the new covenant. He says this, quote, So again, when someone is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is ushered into an objective, visible covenant membership. Regardless of the state of his heart, regardless of any hypocrisy, regardless of whether he, whether or not he means it, such a person is now a visible saint, a Christian, end quote. And, and I think he does make a distinction between a visible Christian and someone who is really part of the invisible church Christian. Um, but the terminology is not helpful here. Um, so this is how he can say that Roman Catholics who are baptized in this way are actually members of the new covenant and should be treated as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ because baptism is what ushers them into the objective covenant. Dangerous language. Very, very dangerous language if it's taken to its logical conclusions. Uh, he goes on to say, quote, We vary between two extremes. The first extreme is to say that people who are guilty of such things are not Christians at all in any sense, and so we rid the body of Christ of them. Unfortunately, by doing this, we have lost the very concept of the visible body of Christ. We find ourselves saying that a man who has never met Christ has betrayed him. In other words, we say that all adulterers were never really married. But of course, this means that they are not really adulterers, end quote. Um, so this kind of reading this and, and other sections in the book, it really makes me wonder if he has a, a doctrine of church discipline. Because if people are members of the new covenant by virtue of their baptism, we just need to call them back to their baptism. We just need to call them back to what they did over here with entering into the covenant, regardless if they believe or not, uh, and then just encourage them back. We don't need to put them out. We don't need to cut them off. Um, I think that there are you know problematic things here uh, with regards to that. Uh, he goes on to say, too, he says, quote, we are to take the baptisms of others at face value. We also take the teaching of Scripture at face value and the behavior and words of these covenant members at face value. There is a conflict between what baptism means and what the baptized are openly doing and saying. Then we are at liberty to point to the inconsistency and say that it constitutes covenant faithlessness, end quote. Again, where, where, where's the church discipline? Someone who professes the name of Christ and they're not being dealt with. We just, you know, we're just to take their baptisms at face value, you know, we're. They're, they're Christians in that sense, so we should just move on. Warn them and move on. So I know that he does have a doctrine of church discipline because I remember reading something about him disciplining someone in his church, um, specifically withholding the Lord's Supper from them. I don't remember what the context of that was now, but I, I remember reading it. Um, the question is, when we, when we church discipline, we're supposed to treat them as an unbeliever, Right. We're supposed right. to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's saying, no, don't do yeah. that. A Gentile, Gentile is somebody who is outside of the people of God. That's outside that's, of the covenant community. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's how we're supposed to treat them. Because as, as Baptists, we recognize 
Um, as far as you, you're demonstrating right now, that's what you appear to be. So we will treat you as you appear to be. Not that we can know perfectly, and we hope that um, that by this by this church discipline, it's actually the means uh, that they're they're brought back in, um, that they're uh, restored, um, and then we will know that okay, they they were Christian, um, though they didn't demonstrate it for a time, but uh, they were truly of Christ because they've repented. Or if they didn't, then uh, we like John can say, well, they were never really of us because if they had been of us, they would have stayed with us. But yep. they went out for us to demonstrate that they were never really of us. Um, and that's a, an obje objectivity that's that's uh, lacking from that perspective, <laughs> because you uh, you're not able to to look at that person like, no, you are you're you're not a Christian because you right. don't believe. Exactly. Um, one more quote here in relation to that. He says, if covenant members are doing what is demonstrably wrong and it is necessary for you to be involved, you may say that they are not being faithful to the covenant. And the response is to call them to faith, faithfulness, call them to Christ, call them back to their baptism and to the terms of the covenant and not to an invisible experience, which neither you nor they would necessarily recognize, end quote. So not helpful language. Um, and it does not is not consistent with how Paul says that we're to deal with members of the church. I mean, first Corinthians five, one through two, very quickly, Paul is already calling people to be put out of the church. It says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you were arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Right. And then he talks about uh, the leavening of the lump of dough, right? A little leaven lemons, a whole lump. So you're to get rid of that, right? You're to put them out. They're to be treated as an unbeliever, a tax collector, right? Um, so he, while he, he seems to have exercised church discipline, he doesn't seem to have a very consistent view of church discipline. Um, and it, that this view that he presents is consistent with his understanding of baptism. If you're in the covenant by virtue of your baptism, then you just need to call them back to, uh, to their covenant faithfulness, to their baptism, and say, well, you need to fulfill these other conditions of the covenant. You need to believe in Christ. Um, but at the end of the day, let's just take them at face value, right? That not helpful language and very dangerous. Um, and it could lead to some uh, problems within your church life. Um, I'm going to read a quote from the joint statement on Federal Vision talking about church membership. It says, quote, we affirm that membership in the one true Christian church is visible and objective and is the possession of everyone who has been baptized in the triune name and who has not been excommunicated by a lawful disciplinary action of the church. So this isn't just a view that Wilson holds to in terms of baptism. Um, it's definitely um, held by those who have signed the statement of federal religion. All right. Um, talking a little bit about false brothers. And, it, and I, again, I'm jumping all over the place. Um, we're not going in any necessary order in his book. We're just picking out certain places that we think are important. Um, and these have to do with his understanding primarily of the new covenant, which is crucial to understanding uh, federal vision. Um, so in chapter 18, he talks about false brothers. And again, this, this ties into what we've been talking about already some. Um, but he believes that there are those who can be really brothers but are false and are members of the new covenant. Uh, he says that this is chapter 18 of his book. He says, quote, false brothers should be considered both as brothers and as false. The concept of covenant breaking helps us to make sense of this, end quote. Again, if you remember the new covenant, 
and you do those things that violate the covenant itself, you're still considered a, a brother. Um, you know, if, if you were brought in by your baptism, then you're still considered a brother, even if uh, you do things that contradict that lifestyle. Um, and, you know, he's talking about he tries to separate the terms, I think, false and brother and holds them both as valid, um, even though Paul is clearly using a adjective qualifier here. They're false brother. And it's like which means they aren't really brethren at all. They're just brethren in name or maybe by association. Yeah, I have a I have a little bit of a, a snarky question here, Dan. Yeah, yeah. Is counterfeit money both money <laughs> and counterfeit? Because to say that false it's brethren, counterfeit and it's money, Sean. <laughs> to say that uh, false brethren are both false and brethren would seem to <laughs> defeat the point of the term false brethren. The why don't is, just say brethren? Why not? Why do you? Well. Uh, <laughs> The fact that they're false means that they weren't brethren. That's that's right. That's exactly. Um, they appeared to be brethren, but it turned out that they were false. They were not brethren. Um, so, uh, um, I don't know. Doug Smith, uh, Doug Wilson is is a very good wordsmith, and uh, I, I think the wordplay is clever, but I don't think it's it's remotely right. No, it doesn't prove his point at all. And even if you look, I looked up the Greek word for false in this specific passage and it carries the idea of unreal. Um, it's pseudo. And so the, the idea this per, these are unreal Christians. These are not yeah. really Christians. These are people in Christian in name, but they're not Christians in reality, yeah. objectively speaking. It's uh, it's, it's the Greek word uh, pseudo. And uh, we hear it still used in English today with like pseudoscience. Pseudoscience is not real science. That's the right. point of it. Um, not that just because the root started in, in or it's the same root that in English it means necessarily the same thing, but it, it, in this case it does. It's something that's false. It's not true, right? So I don't I don't know if we can really clarify it more than that. I think it stands on its own, but um, it, it's just kind of funny that he he brings those things up. Um, okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about the law in chapter twenty. He talks about the law. Um, as it relates to uh, the new covenant, uh, he says, quote, we hear such things and we tend to panic. If the law is dead, then how shall we govern our lives? At this point, many Christians divide into two different camps represented by the words continuity and discontinuity. Many of those who argue for continuity say that we still have the law of God in the Old Testament continuing over into the new in just the same kind of way. Many of those who argue for discontinuity say that the old law is dead and good riddance. We are now directed by the spirit within or by express teaching in the New Testament only. So which is it? The answer is both. It's kind of like that answer he did before. It's like it, yeah, both things can be true. Apparently the law is complete content. The law has complete continuity in the same way that the body of Christ has continuity with his resurrected body. It is the same body that rose from the dead. John twenty twenty seven. The law has con discontinuity in the sense that the resurrection changes the meaning and nature of everything. In that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, fifteen thirty seven. So he goes on to talk about how the, the law was resurrected with Christ. Um, and I think that there are implications here. I don't think he, I don't think he believes in, in the continuity of the sacrificial system or anything like that. Um, but the language here kind of, you could almost infer that from here because it's not very clear on what he means by that. At the very least, I think he's talking about sanctification, but he does talk about um, law gospel distinction 
um, when he's talking in the context of this back from the dead. Um, he, see, he says it is important for us to understand the nature of new covenant law as resurrected law because to fail to do it is to drift back into troublesome law gospel distinctions. So there's there's some implications there that that might tend to believe he doesn't hold to a law gospel distinction. I think he does um, to some extent, um, but he seems well, to to kind of conflate um, certain things here. So and and I'll admit this is a little bit of a weak spot uh, for me because I didn't fully understand what he was trying to say, but. He, he made, in the reading I did, he made some sort of distinction between the law and gospel being there and us having a law gospel hermeneutic. Um, he didn't think that we sh- uh, that the hermeneutic was necessarily true. So I think he does affirm law gospel distinction in some sense, but he wouldn't yes. want to read the Bible through a law gospel hermeneutic. Um, yeah, he doesn't is- qualify it. As well yeah. as he should have. And I think it, that's another area of confusion and not helpful language. Yeah. Um, Which, it's like, well, I'm saying we're, fu- we're we're moving into troublesome law gospel distinctions, but doesn't say what those distinctions are. And so it, yeah. it kind of is you scratching your head like, uh, are you saying there are no law gospel distinctions? Well, you know, if, it, if, it's not clear. If the law gospel distinction as taught by the Bible is true, then we would want to read the scripture through the lens of the law of gospel hermeneutic. Right. So, so in spots where it isn't explicitly clear, because we know that it's been taught other uh, in other places, we can understand. Okay, well, there is this this thing called the law of gospel distinction. I should read it through this framework because it was a biblically derived framework. Uh, so I'm I'm confused because obviously there is some sort of distinction in his mind between law of gospel distinction being true and us having the hermeneutic, but I'm not quite sure where that distinction lies. Um, so, uh, unfortunately I can't comment any more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's not very helpful language and certainly doesn't, um, move the conversation forward in a way that it should. Um, but again, this is a perfect example where Wilson uses language that's familiar, but may have alternate meanings sl- to it or at least, meaning, yeah. or at least muddies the waters in terms of his lack of clarity. Um, which is not what you should do when you're talking about issues like this, because th- we're talking about the gospel here. You should be yeah. as clear as you can yeah. when you're talking about these things, uh, especially over over 20 years. I understand as a, right. as a young believer that yeah. things I said were probably, well, A, wrong, but B, probably not said in the most helpful way. But as iron sharpens iron, I've gotten better in articulating the truth um, in a way that's more clear. Um, you would think that after 20 years, if um, if there wasn't an issue here, uh, that eventually his, his language would become clearer so that we would all understand what was being said. The fact that it's still a little murky um, and, and really, it's, I think, ultimately, is because he doesn't have the same view of justification and the same view of works as yeah. we do. Uh, but the fact that it's murky is is odd. It's it's an odd thing that after 20 years or however long it's been, that it's still this way. Yeah. Yeah. It is problematic. Um, so we'll kind of close out our discussion. I want to, I think this where we're going to get to here, talking about covenant faithfulness a little bit more. And I think that's really going to flesh out um, really the crux of what we're talking about. This is really the key issue. I think when it comes to federal vision is talking about covenant faithfulness and what does that mean? Um, so I want to spend some time. I know Sean has a hard stop at 10, so we'll try to wrap this up pretty quickly here. Um, but I want to spend time on this. 
Um, so in chapter 22, he talks about more this covenant keeping and covenant faithfulness, right? Um, as opposed to those who break the covenant, right? Um, so he says this, quote, We must constantly remember that we have a natural and very dangerous tendency to immediately assume that keeping the covenant is accomplished by some means other than faith working its way out in love. But when we have faith that works its way out in love, which is the only thing that genuine faith can do, then the condition that God has set for the fulfillment of his promise has been met. Can we fulfill our covenant responsibilities by believing and yet have God failed to fulfill his promise? It is not possible, end quote. Um, so this quote is in a response to a gentleman he's interacting with with the last name Strange. So the quote that he's responding to Strange says this, quote, But we must at every point recognize that it is not because of our merit in any sense, including our faithfulness, that God blesses us, and it is only by gra the grace of God that the power of the Holy Spirit works that blessing in our lives. The divine grace that is bestowed to wives and children is not automatic and is and it and is certainly not because of husbandly fidelity. Wilson may well agree with this, yet his position implying that human fidelity produces inevitable head-for-head -head results misses the covenantal mark and heads into bio, uh, biologicalistic ex opera operato direction in a in a that. Um, so I think that statement is good. He's, you know, saying that it's only by the grace of God. There's no faithfulness, no requirements that we have to meet in order to get the promises of God. There's no requirements, covenantally speaking, that we are having to meet that would inevitably merit us getting those promises. Um, and that would essentially be a covenant of works, right? You fulfill your part of the covenant and then God gives his uh, end of the deal. Um, and, and ex opera operato means from the work performed. So this would be, you know, you're doing your work in the covenant and then God does his work in the covenant. Um, and again, that's very problematic uh, language. So we would say, you know, where Adam failed, Christ prevailed, right? Adam broke the covenant of works, which was essentially the law of God. He broke that law that God gave him. Um, and so he plunged the human race into sin. We receive the death penalty, the eternal death penalty. Um, as a result of that, we are condemned. We are guilty as if we sinned it with Adam. Excuse me. Um, and we can say this because Romans 5, I think, is very clear on this. Um, and the law did exist at the time of Adam. And Paul talks about this a little bit. In Romans 5, 12 through 14, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one uh, of the one who was to come. So sin is only known by the law itself. Right. Paul makes that very clear in Romans three through the, the law comes the knowledge of sin. Um, so since sin existed before the law was formally given to the Jews, it existed in principle, at least um, at that time. So we can say that when Adam broke the covenant of works, he was breaking the law of God. OK, um, so the covenant that uh, Adam broke, it was in a sense breaking the law of God. Adam could not fulfill that law, but Christ being the antitype of Adam fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf. Um, so if if we're being imputed with the transgression that Adam uh, broke, that Adam committed um, in order for justice to take place, Christ has to fulfill that thing which Adam broke in order to bring us back into a right relationship before God. That's the just thing. That's justice 
Christ is fulfilling that requirement in order for our relationship before God to be um, to be reestablished. Because our relationship before God is broken on the basis of what somebody else did of breaking God's law. So those requirements have to be met in order to bring us back to that state. And in this case, it would be Christ fulfilling the law of God perfectly actively and passively by fulfilling the requirements of the punishments of the law. Um, and, and again, this goes back to what we're talking about in the Westminster uh, chapter seven, paragraph two, that talks about that covenant that was made with Adam. He had to keep perfectly in order to receive those promises. Um, but our confession in paragraph three of chapter seven says, and it is alone by the grace of this covenant, it's talking about the new covenant, that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man now utterly being uh, utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. So we can't stand where Adam was and live a perfect life and fulfill the law of God perfectly. So we need someone who can do that for us. And that's where the covenant of grace comes in. So there's no covenantal conditions left to fulfill. It's, it's just Christ has fulfilled those conditions, which were in the covenant of works, which was to obey God perfectly in essence, in which Adam broke. Um, so we have to... You have to be very careful when we're talking about these things to not see faith as some sort of covenantal condition. There are no more conditions to meet. Christ fulfilled those conditions, which was to obey God perfectly and perfect righteousness. Um, Adam did not fulfill that requirement and so plunged us into death and, and guilt. But Christ fulfilled that requirement and so can bring us life and resurrection and the blessings that are in it. Um, so we can't see faith as some sort of covenantal fulfillment. Yes, we have to believe in order to receive those blessings, but it's an instrument. It's not counted towards anything I did in terms of meritorious. It's not being counted as a as a covenantal fulfillment because Christ has fulfilled those those blessings, uh, fulfilled those requirements to receive so we can receive the blessings being united to the federal head. Um, but I think that's the most important. If anything, you take away from our discussion that, I think, is is the most dangerous aspect of the language that Wilson uses and the most important um, lesson to take away from this. Do you have anything you want to add, Sean? No, um, I guess just with the, the whole the whole um, uh, faith as an instrument, the Bible treats faith um, as something apart from works. Right. So yes. I frequently. I frequently see people talk in those categories, but the danger is you can turn faith into a work, right? Oh, um, yeah. Uh, and it is a good work in and of itself. We're not denying that. Yeah, yeah. But you can turn it into something meritorious. Yeah. And I know Doug Wilson explicitly denies being a neonomian, which neonomians basically are. The new covenant is just a, a different law um, that you have to keep. It's just an easier law to keep. I mean, that might be slightly biased language. I don't know if they quite describe it like that, but that's what it seems to be to me. Um, so you can you can turn it into a work, and it's not enough to say, well, I believe in faith alone. Um, it's, uh, it's not enough to say that when, if your system creates that, uh, then you're, you're, still, you're still creating a work out of, out of it. It's not enough to say, well, I believe in faith uh, when you've turned faith into a work. And at least it's it's a borderline question in my mind if if doug wilson has done that um or well honestly if you're if you're roping into in 
as you're roping in like continuing in righteousness, continuing in goodness and other things into that, you are turning uh, faith into faith uh, into a work, if that makes sense. Yep. So we have to it's it, it doesn't take much to do that. Right. It does not take much to do that. You all you need is to to rephrase faith in such a way and then you have a completely different doctrine and the implications are are eternal, literally, um, because we're talking about the gospel. So we have to make sure that we get the gospel right. Sure, we're not going to under, necessarily understand all the implications, but the basics have to be there or we're going to um, be in a dangerous place. Uh, someone asked, uh, is this a Catholic? <laughs> uh, no, I, no, I. I don't know what aspect of Baptist told you that this was a Catholic channel, um, but maybe you just didn't see our, our name, um, but it's, it's the particular Baptist podcast. No, we are not Roman Catholic. We deny. If you have faith in Christ, then you will then live have, in his have... Catholic church. Oh, is this so true seeker? Are you a Roman Catholic? Um, if you have faith in Christ, then you will have faith in his Catholic church. Um not sure exactly what you mean by that. Maybe a little more context would be helpful. Um, but we're going to close out the show. And True Seeker, feel free to follow up with any questions or comments, and we can try and uh, answer where we can. Um, but thanks for your interaction today. But with that, um, everyone, please have a great day and rest of your weekend. And um, Lord willing, we'll be back. Thanks for your, uh, your attention.